This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. I'm on a beautiful, wild, uninhabited island on the coast of Alaska. Just made my way through one of my favorite stretches of forest. Great, big spruce and hemlock trees. You walk under the canopy of boughs and you feel sheltered and comforted. A shroud of thick green moss laid up over the fallen trunks of trees that are moldering away, the younger trees growing up from those older ones. And you get a sense of the ongoing, eternally cycling life and death here in the temperate rainforests of the north. I've just come up into a more open forest, a little bit wetter, and up ahead there's going to be a muskeg. It's going to open up. I can see the light through the trees on this beautiful summer evening. And just now along the trail here, there's a lot of deer droppings, little hoof prints pressed into the mud as I go along. And just along the side of the trail here, I can see where deer have nipped off the tops of the dwarf dogwoods. And they're going to start fattening up on all this green stuff, the blueberry bushes, the menzesia all around here, the ferns coming up. It's that time of year when you feel so grateful to be where you are and to be alive. Now, just here alongside of the trail, right next to the trail, there's a cedar tree with, uh, you can hear this very dry bark. These are long strips of bark that are dangling off this tree. They've been torn off, going up about eight to 10 feet. If you look down about eight inches above the ground, there are long scores going across the grain of the tree. These are bear tooth marks. Brown bear came along here, tore the bark off to lick the sap. I remember when that happened. I've been along this trail a couple hundred times over the last 20 years. That happened about four years ago. When I found it, it was very fresh. No bear sign at all so far, just the deer. I saw some fresh mink and otter tracks back down on the beach, about 300 yards back. I've climbed up a very steep embankment. Now I'm walking along a very narrow, kind of twisting game trail into this kind of remote place. And I'm just now coming out into an open muskeg, long, narrow muskeg or bog. It's about 50 yards wide here. I can look up at maybe a quarter of a mile. Open, grassy, mossy muskeg. Scattered all around through it are little stunted shore pine trees and around the edges cedar trees and some mountain hemlocks and lots of interesting boggy muskeggy plants like Alaska cotton or cotton grass. And scattered around through this muskeg are irregularly shaped ponds with glazed slick surfaces reflecting the broken overcast sky, the blue holes in the clouds. Also, lovely water lily flowers, brilliant yellow flowers, and the big, flat, green, heart-shaped leaves floating on the smooth surface of those ponds. Such a beautiful place. And here, on this particular stretch of shoreline and forest and muskeg, I had experiences that changed the entire course of my life. 
This is where I stumbled into an entirely unexpected sense of belonging to a place and of commitment to that place as my home. And that's what I want to talk about. I came to this island, as I mentioned, about 20 years ago, after I had first seen it through the window of a small float plane. Something about it, seeing it off in the distance, captivated me. And I went back to the little southeast Alaska village where I was living and made the long trip back here in a little aluminum skiff. Camped just down the shore for a couple of weeks, exploring the island, catching fish for campfire dinners, watching the ravens and eagles and the deer, watching the otters and the seals in the water, the salmon coming up the stream, and also visiting the nearby town that I found just as enticing as I found this island. And by the time I left, I knew with absolute clarity that this was where I wanted to live. Now that might not seem so unusual, but since I had left Wisconsin, where I grew up about 15 years earlier, I had never stayed in one place for more than about nine months. I knew that I loved Alaska. I had a pretty good idea I wanted to stay here, but I had never felt fully settled and I kept moving around from one place to another, sometimes inside Alaska, sometimes other places as well. I had been rootless, like many people nowadays. People moving around for jobs, for change of climate or scenery, for adventure, or maybe just change for its own sake, doing something different. But I wonder, when we live this way, how can we ever really know our neighbors? How can we know our town with any depth? How can we know our surrounding natural environment? And what's the effect of never fully committing ourselves to a community and to a place. Well, when I came here, it was literally love at first sight. It's just like when you fall in love with another person. It's very hard to explain what that is or why it happens. But the heart-pounding excitement is much the same, I think, when a place takes a hold of you as it is when you meet that person that you fall in love with. Since I had first come to Alaska, I'd always been fascinated by the people, the cultures, the communities, and everything related to the natural environment. But when I moved to this place, the spring after that first camping visit, I became almost obsessive <laughs> about immersing myself in this place. I reflected many times on something a friend had said in the small southeast Alaska village where I had lived before I came here. He said this, I hear people say they're going on a vacation to France or Hawaii or Mexico, he said, but for me, what I'd really want to do is just take my skiff up to the head of the inlet, about 30 miles away, and see those places up there. That's all I need to keep me happy. I had envied him when he said that, and now for the first time, I understood that man's feelings. Wow, here just off the side of the trail is a white little pile of bone, and it's the gradually disintegrating skull of a deer with one fork-horned antler on it. I know that skull very well because I put it there shortly after I took that deer a long, long time ago, probably 12 years ago, and I've been able to watch that slowly 
fall apart and decay. I left that here along with the innards of the deer for the other animals and carried the body of the deer down for the supply of venison. Well, I'm wandering up the muskeg here, and again, I'm following exactly the path that I've followed so many times over the years, and here, right up ahead here, I see something that looks really interesting. Here is a bare footprint trail, and I'm putting my feet right in each track, and it's a great big long step to get my feet in those tracks as I move along. So they're indentations that have been scraped out by a bear, scraped very recently. In the bottom of this thing is just kind of down to almost mud, and along the back of each track is the moss that the bear scraped out of there. So I can see that that bear was going the same direction I am, and it intentionally made these footprints. Now this is something I've seen many, many times, and you may have heard about these. They see them oftentimes up in mountain country and in tundra country, and the word is always that they're created by bears walking in the same footprints for generations. Well, I'll tell you what. This is a brand new thing, and I'm guessing it wasn't here a week ago. It's never been here before, and what I believe happens, a friend of mine, biologist Steve Reifenstuhl, started noticing this, that these trails appear to be made by male bears, and he believes, and I think he's right, that they're territorial markers. Oftentimes, next to one of those footprint trails, this one, I've come to the end now, it's about 30 feet long. This one doesn't have any big trees next to it, but if there are big trees, you'll often find where the male bears have stood up against the tree and rubbed their back, got their scent into that tree, making a kind of a territorial marker. Oh my goodness, if that wasn't enough of an incentive to keep my eyes open, right here in the trail, about 50 feet farther on, very fresh bear droppings. I'm actually touching them right now, pushing my finger in them. They're not warm, so I know they're not extremely fresh. What do they look like? Very dark color, a lot of grassy vegetation in them, and it looks like a dog has been here, but you gotta sort of jack up the proportions. It would be about a 400 or 500 pound dog. So that is one of the more exciting things I've seen in a while. It's always so good to know that all the animals that belong here are here. And it's kind of refreshing also to know that you're not the only one who's at the top of the food chain in this place. Another experience that powerfully influenced my sense of home and connection to place happened right here a few years after I first came. I came up into the muskeg to hunt deer as I had done many times before and have done countless times since. It was a cold December day, well below freezing, very bright, sunny, about a foot of snow on the ground and powdery snow hanging on all the boughs and branches. As I look around, I can remember what it was like then. It's so very, very different now as beautiful amber sunset pouring down through this muskeg now, just putting its bright tinge on everything and eye-ringing brilliance on these calm, smooth muskeg ponds. Well, very, very different that day. And I moved slowly, slowly up along the muskeg to exactly this place where I'm standing right now. And I'm looking up as I did on that day and remembering what I saw. I'm going to come back to that in a little while. Well, long before that, I had worked as a cultural anthropologist living with Inupak, 
Gwich'in and Koyukon people up in the Arctic and interior of Alaska. I was trying to learn about subsistence lifeways and traditional knowledge of the natural world and make a written record of this knowledge. And the way I did it was to apprentice myself as a hunter, fisher, gatherer, try to learn by doing and by being with people as they lived out their life on the land. I was constantly amazed by the depth and the sophistication of this knowledge, and also amazed by the strength of people's connections to their homeland. For thousands of years, the ancestors of these people had been living intimately with the land, traveling through it, drawing their livelihood from the plants and animals. My sense of it is that these people have become so rooted in a place that they've come to consider themselves to hold true participating membership in one great community that includes not only human beings, but also the plants, the animals, and the land itself. There's a closeness in that relationship that's almost beyond fathoming for an outsider. They've also embellished the land with thousands of names, like the word Kilimitagavik in the Inupak language up on the North Slope. It means place to hunt ducks with ivory bolas. Or Ulugunik, the name of the village of Wainwright, just down the coast from Barrow. It means where a standing thing fell and left its traces. Or in the Koyukon language, Tsatihtanatakontin the name of the village of Huslia. It means where a forest fire burned the hill all the way to the river. Or Dilbagatsulnihu, where somebody grabbed a ptarmigan. Beautiful and evocative place names like these epitomize the ways that native people and their history are woven into their homeland. Grandpa Jobitas, a Koyukon elder from the village of Hughes, once said this about his home. I don't like to leave this country. I just stay here. And I like that. I guess not only me, the rest of the old people, the same thing. They don't like to leave their home. Again, words that just resonated for me. I envied what Grandpa Joe had said. I envied that feeling and wished I could be this way myself. You might be hearing in the background a hermit thrush, beautiful chiming voice of the summer evenings in many, many parts of Alaska. In the native communities where I lived, subsistence was at the heart of people's connection to land and place. I understood this much more clearly after settling here and seriously following a subsistence lifestyle. I think about that when I'm in this muskeg where I've hunted every year many times over the past 20-some years. I made a decision to do all my hunting on this particular island. I also chose to do my fishing and gathering from the surrounding waters and the lands on or near this island because I wanted my body to be made from this place that I love. I wanted to carry the island inside me through the food that I ate from here, the deer, the salmon, the berries that I gathered in this place. I wrote in my journal and later in a book called The Island Within, Living from wild nature joins me with the island as no disconnected love ever could. These eyes that see the island are also made from it. These hands that write of the island are also made from it. And the heart that loves the island has something of the island's heart inside. Oh, I think about that now as that sun starting to sink 
down just close to the horizon. And I'm joined here on this evening as the temperature drops a little bit by a little buzzing horde of gnats and a few mosquitoes. The banquet is on and I'm the main dish. My sense of connection to this place grew in some other ways too. It grew by reading about the natural history of this part of the world and by listening to local experts who knew so much more about it than I. Learning everything I could about the land, the ocean, the rivers, the animals, and the plants. Also, my sense of connection grew through the deepening friendships I had with a community of people here and by participating in many aspects of the life of the town that I loved more and more as time passed and by experiencing the same things year after year in the same place. You know, like coming up this muskeg, seeing it again is a kind of reaffirmation of the old, but also the exciting new things like those bare footprints and like looking at the particular pattern of deer tracks, including little tiny fawn tracks here in this dry muskeg pond. We haven't had much rain for a little while. In that journal that later became the Island Within, I wrote this thought. There may be more to learn by climbing the same mountain a hundred times than by climbing a hundred different mountains. I was also guided and inspired by reading what people far wiser and more experienced than I had written. For example, Henry David Thoreau, who celebrated the pleasures of what he called traveling at home and who famously wrote, I have traveled widely around Concord, that is Concord, Massachusetts, and Walden Pond. In his journal, Thoreau wrote, think of the consummate folly of attempting to go away from here, when the constant endeavor should be to get nearer and nearer here. And on this same subject, the 17th century Buddhist teacher, Hakuin Ikaku, in his poem, The Song of Zen, how sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Like someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst. Like a child of a wealthy family wandering among the poor. Well, over time, I came to see my relationship to this place as a kind of marriage where you aspire for a lifelong commitment, where you savor the joys of the exceptional and unusual, the great moments, as well as you savor the ordinary, mundane passage of daily life. And I learned that commitment to a particular place naturally leads to a deeper concern for the well-being of that place. Just as you feel protective toward your mate or your marriage partner, you also want to take care of your community and its surroundings. You want to keep it rich and productive for subsistence and other livelihoods like fishing. You want to keep it clean and unpolluted in order to protect your health and the health of your neighbors. You want to keep it beautiful. You want to use the wildlife responsibly. You want to take care of their essential habitat, both for your own pleasure and to keep the place attractive for other people like tourists who have become so very important to the economy of our Alaskan communities. There's also the idea of tithing or reciprocity, to give something back to your home place in return for all that it's given to you. I remember hearing the late Tlingit elder, Austin Hammond, who was from Kluckwan, saying, if you take care of the land, the land will take care of you. Words that have resonated through my mind and memory. Oh man, the sun is just pouring down. Golden, blinding, eye-ringing sunset. 
off these smooth-faced ponds with the water striders dimpling the surface and the yellow pond lilies so brilliant in the amber glow. My adopted home is surrounded by lands that are part of America's largest national forest, the Tongass National Forest. By the laws of our country, this land belongs to everyone. It's similar to a communally owned tribal homeland, but in this case, the tribe is all people from everywhere in the world. It's as if the gate to public lands like this one were locked open for all of us to walk here, to camp here, to hunt and fish here, to encounter the amazing wildlife that lives here, to experience peace and solitude here, to find our spiritual connections to the earth and to all of creation here. And we can also experience in places like these the Alaskan land much as it has been since the first human being laid eyes on it. It could be said that Public lands like this national forest, like our national wildlife refuges, like our national parks, are one of the greatest accomplishments of American democracy. Designating some of our most beautiful, our most pristine, most biologically rich places as part of our own national heritage. Also, these are among the most important places where we can express ourselves as citizens in our democratic society because we have the right, perhaps even the responsibility, to involve ourselves in how these lands are used, how they're managed. It's a very important privilege and freedom that we inherit. And so living in this place, this American place, has helped me to more fully understand the gift of democracy. And it's led me toward an entirely new sense of patriotism, recognizing that a citizen's ultimate allegiance might be to the American land itself, the land on which our nation stands, the land that sustains our communities, the land that inspires us, that elevates our spirits, that makes us grateful, as I'm feeling on this evening, grateful to be alive. Well, I remember walking here on this particular land on that December day years ago. There were abundant deer tracks everywhere in the snow, and I followed a deer trail that was packed down into that snow like a little trough moving very, very slowly, watching closely, I spotted something up ahead. I stopped watching it for a long time through binoculars. I realized it was the brown, furry ear of a black-tailed deer moving this way and that way as it listened. I eased toward it very, very slowly, keeping a single leaning tree between myself and that deer's line of sight until I came up behind that leaning tree. And that's what I'm doing right now. The tree is just ahead of me. And as I stood here, a buck deer came out from the woods, came over to her. She stood up. They sort of walked around each other. And she was oblivious to me. He was not. But he kind of became used to the fact that I was standing here. And this is what I did and how I wrote about it in that book, The Island Within. Inching like a reptile on a cold rock, I have stepped out from the tree and let my whole menacing profile become visible. The deer are 30 feet away and stand well apart so they can both see me easily. Drawn by the honey of the doe's scent, the buck steps quickly toward her, and now the most extraordinary thing happens. The doe turns away from him and walks straight for me. 
There's no hesitation, only a wild deer coming along the trail of hardened snow where the other deer have passed, the trail in which I stand at this moment. She raises her head, looks at me, and steps without pausing. My existence is reduced to a pair of eyes. A rush of unbearable heat flushes through my cheeks, and a sense of absolute certainty fuses in my mind. The snow blazes so brightly that my head aches. The deer is a dark form growing larger. I look up at the buck, half embarrassed, as if to apologize that she's chosen me over him. He stares at her for a moment, turns to follow, then stops and watches anxiously. I'm struck by how gently her hooves touch the trail, how little sound they make as she steps, how thick the fur is on her flank and shoulder, how unfathomable her eyes look. I am consumed with a sense of her perfect elegance in the brilliant light, and then I am lost again in the whirling intensity of experience. The doe is now ten feet from me. She never pauses or looks away. Her feet punch down mechanically into the snow, coming closer and closer until they're less than a yard from my own. Then she stops, stretches her neck calmly toward me, and lifts her nose. There is not the slightest question in my mind, as if this was sure to happen and I've known all along exactly what to do. I slowly raise my hand and reach out, and my fingers touch the soft, dry, gently needling fur on top of the deer's head and press down to the living warmth of flesh underneath. She makes no move and shows no fear, but I can feel the flaming strength and tension that flow in her wild body as in no other animal I have touched. Time expands and I am suspended in the clear reality of the moment. Then, by the flawed conditioning of a lifetime among fearless domesticated things, I instinctively drop my hand and let the deer smell it. Her black nose, wet and shining, touches gently against my skin at the exact instant I realize the absoluteness of my error. And a tremor runs through her entire body as she realizes hers. Her muscles seize and harden. She seems to wrench her eyes away from me, but her body remains rigid and paralyzed. Having been deceived by her other senses, she keeps her nose tight against my hand for one more moment. Then all the energy inside her triggers in a series of exquisite bounds. She flings out over the hummocks of snow-covered moss, suspended in effortless flight like fog blown over the muskeg in a gale. Her body leaps with such power that the muscles should twang aloud like a bowstring. The earth should shudder and drum, but I hear no sound. In the center of the muskeg, she stops to look back, as if to confirm what must seem impossible. The buck follows in more earthbound undulations. They dance away together, and I'm left in the meeting place alone. As I am now on this summer evening, remembering the experience of touching that wild deer and how it epitomizes everything that has fired my love for Alaska and has led me to anchor my own life here in this place. What more could we ask, after all, than to live surrounded by these endless tiers of mountains, the serrated glaciers, the imperturbable rivers, the sighing forests, the roaring coasts, and sharing our places with some of the most impressive, fascinating wild animals on earth, moose and caribou, wolf and grizzly, lynx and wolverine, beaver and porcupine, snowy owl and jeer falcon, ptarmigan and tundra swan, sockeye and silver salmon, polar bear and walrus, bearded seal and beluga, humpback whale and bowhead whale.
living in the heat of boreal summer, the chill of Arctic winter, the gales of coastal autumn, and the gentle questions of our northern spring. And always, everywhere around us, the immense, silent, encompassing, comforting gift of wildness. In a world so beautiful, you feel as if you've awakened each day to the dawn of creation itself. What a joy it is to be here in this place, this Alaska. I want to say it's been a tremendous pleasure to spend this time with you every week, and I want to thank you so much for your good company. I'm Richard Nelson. I look forward to seeing you right here. Encounters is a production of KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. The program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson and produced by Lisa Bush, special consulting from Ken Fate, theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded during the International Polar Years by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, Robert Osborne, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, and Sue Cohn. For more information about the show and how to get copies, visit us online at EncountersNorth.org.